What's a memory from your dad's presidency that comes back to you often? One that just for some reason has stuck with you the most? You know, I, I have a funny story that's a great memory. It was the first night we had dinner in the White House. And you have to remember that we didn't get to move into the White House for seven days because when Nixon left, they weren't able to pack up all their belongings quick enough. And so their daughter and son-in-law, I think, stayed and packed all their clothes. So we had to go back to our little house in Alexandria, Virginia, and, and for the first seven days of Dad's presidency. And, and I remember that first meal after Dad became president, after he got sworn in that day. We're sitting around the dinner table, and my mother was cooking, and, and my, my mother looked over Dad from, you know, she was at the stove, and she goes, Jerry, something's wrong here. You just became president of the United States, and I'm still cooking. <laughs> and that was the, the memory that sticks the most of how such a strange time it was that for seven days we had to live in our little house in suburbia, and Dad would commute to the Oval Office. This is Stephen Ford, the youngest son of President Gerald Ford, who took over when Richard Nixon resigned from office. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is the 37th episode of Presidential. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you a date which will live in infamy. Gerald Ford's presidency wasn't just rare because he took over for the only president, Nixon, who had ever resigned from office. It was also rare because Ford had never even been on the campaign ticket. Nixon's original vice president was Spiro Agnew, but in 1973, Agnew had to resign over criminal charges of money laundering and tax evasion. So Nixon had to nominate a new vice president, and he picked Gerald Ford, who at that point was the Republican House Minority Leader. The Congress confirmed Ford. But then less than a year later, in August 1974, Nixon also had to resign, and that thrust Gerald Ford into the presidency, making him the only American president to never have been elected to any national office by voters. He became both vice president and then president through these extraordinary constitutional backup plans. So, we have some really neat guests for this episode. Berkeley professor Daniel Sargent will discuss some of the most notable foreign and domestic events during Ford's brief time in office, including the end of the Vietnam War. And I'm also going to talk with David Hume Kennerly, who was Ford's White House photographer. Ford was actually one of the first presidents to have one. And Kennerly has some amazing stories of being such a close observer quite literally close, um, to Ford's time as president. But before all of that, President Ford's youngest son, Steve, was kind enough to talk on the phone with me about his father's life. And I thought, you know, why not shake things up a little? And instead of a biographer for this first portion, we'll have someone really close to Gerald Ford 
talk about his character traits and his path to the presidency. So, Steve, it's it's an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, tell me about your dad's childhood, maybe starting with the fact that he wasn't actually born with the name Gerald Ford. Yeah, I think dad's childhood is one of the, the key things that, that drove him in to the success he got to in the public service area. And that you're right, I, he was born with a different name, Leslie King, and his mother had married a, a man who was physically abusive, who literally beat her on her, you know, honeymoon. And dad was born shortly after that, nine, ten months later. And so he came up in a physically abusive situation with a father, but thank God he had a, a wonderfully strong mother. His mother, Dorothy, uh, one night her husband came at her with a butcher knife, mm-hmm. and uh, Dad was just a baby, and she fled in the middle of the night and left Omaha, Nebraska, and went across the bridge, across the river, to Council Bluffs, Iowa, and she hid out for two or three days with Dad. It was just a young child, and she waited for her her father to come down on the train from Illinois to pick her up and take her back home. She filed for divorce. And you think about how, how strong a woman she must have been because, you know, back in 1914, 1915, women didn't leave marriages. And here was a woman that was willing to take the shame of a single mother with a child back then. She eventually moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And met a wonderful man, and his name was Gerald R. Ford Sr., and he took my dad in when he married Dorothy, and and that that was a man that, that invested in dad's life. That was a man that, gosh, made sure he had the, the right school teachers, the right football coach, the right church pastor, the right Boy Scout leader. Until he was 16 years old, dad didn't know that Grandpa Ford was not his real father. Dad was working uh, at lunchtime when he was going to high school to make some money flipping hamburgers at a burger joint across the street from the high school. And a man walked in and said, is there a Leslie King here? And my dad had never heard that name. Hmm. And he said, is there a Jerry Ford here? And my dad said, yeah, that's me. And this man who was his biological father said, I'm your real father. And Dad was shocked. He, he did not know the story. Grandma and Grandpa Ford had never told him. And he sat down with this man, and, and he said he'd just come from Detroit, bought a new Cadillac, had a new wife, and was headed to a new ranch he bought in Wyoming. And he wanted Dad to join him. And my dad was shocked. And he was crazy. He, you know, you've not been a part of my life. And he went home and told his mother, and they sat down at the kitchen table and they told him the story and that's how he found out. And he never heard from his real father again. Wow. Um, so <laughs> one question I always ask in these podcast episodes is what would it be like to go on a blind date with this president, which feels like an inappropriate question to ask you, but, <laughs> um, you know, maybe you can, it, just give a sense at least of your dad's character and if someone were to meet him for the first time, what sort of traits they would notice most about him. You know, he was kind of the athlete, the square, the guy that uh, always did it the right way and probably wasn't the smartest guy in the room or the most intellectual, but he had the most common sense. What's uh, 
What's the story that you always heard of how he and your mother met? They met, were set up on a blind date. Dad had seen her and uh, asked a friend, you know, who's that gal? And they said, that's Betty Bloomer. Uh, so someone arranged for them to, to meet and have cocktails with some other folks. And that's how he met. <laughs> and when he was dating my mother, he told her, he said, Betty, I want to marry you, but I have a secret. And I can't tell you yet. And that was that he was going to run for Congress. And uh, she swears that if she knew he was going to go into politics, she never would have married him. But uh, it worked out pretty good. So he does win that congressional seat. And then he spends 25 years as a congressman uh, from 1949 to 1973. And he's even House Minority Leader for those last nine years of it. Um so what did you see of how your dad operated as a congressman? His best friend in Congress was Tip O'Neill, the Democratic Speaker of the House. They would fight on the floor of Congress about legislation and get something hammered out, compromise. And then that night, Tip O'Neill would be at our house for dinner. And that was the difference between politics back then and today. They knew how to work together, not be enemies, and find compromises. And it it would hurt Dad to see how toxic politics has gotten. I remember Dad talking to me and saying, how am I going to work out something in Congress with someone on the other side of an issue if, if, if I can't break bread with them, if I can't, I don't know where their son's going to college or what their dog's name is. It's relational. And we don't see that today. Do you remember finding out that your dad would be vice president? Do you remember that moment? You must have been in your last year of high school, right? Um, Yeah. It was in October of 1973, and I was in uh, my senior year of high school. And when you think about when Richard Nixon went to pick the next vice president after Spiro Agnew had to leave office, Jerry Ford's name was not on the top of that list. The top of that list would have been a Nelson Rockefeller, former Republican governor of New York or John Connolly, former Democratic governor of Texas. But Carl Albert and um, Mike Mansfield, the Democratic leaders of Congress, went to Nixon. And they said, this is who you can get through Congress, Jerry Ford. That was what vaulted him to the vice presidency and eventually the presidency. I remember the night he got called by the White House and let him know that he was going to be the choice, and then they were going to announce it later. Um, we were just sitting around having a family meal, and all of a sudden this phone call came. And the interesting thing is my mother, after 25 years in Congress for Dad, had finally convinced him to retire. She was tired of politics, and she was ready to go back to Michigan, and he was going to start a law practice or something. And then Nixon asked him to be vice president, and my mother was not happy at all. She hmm. She didn't like that idea, and I remember my dad putting his arm around her and saying, Betty, don't worry, vice presidents don't do anything, (laughs) and that didn't really work out, and next thing you know, 10 months later, because of Watergate, we end up in the White House. Do you think he ever had aspirations to be president, or Congress was really his dream job? Dad never had aspirations to be president. I never heard him talk about anything like that. His aspiration was to be Speaker of the House. 
with a Republican majority, and that that never happened. Yeah, and do you remember the moment you found out he was actually going to be president? I do. I remember that it all happened very, very quickly. And I think most people remember those pictures of Richard Nixon boarding the helicopter and waving at his staff, family, and friends as, you know, we backed off, got out of the way as the helicopter took took off, and we headed into the East Room of the White House for Dad to be sworn in. And that the strange thing is, most times when you get a new president, there's parties and galas and parades and the celebration, but that's not what this was. This was a, a constitutional crisis. You had a man who was now going to walk in the East Room of the White House put his hand on the Bible, take the oath of office that had not been elected by the American people. Never happened before in the history of this country. You had a Vietnam War, a Cold War with the Russians, an economy that was in shambles. You had inflation, double-digit, unemployment, 7 8%, stock market had crashed, you had an energy crisis, and here was a man that had not been elected by the American people that was going to lead America. It was yeah, it was a scary day. And it's interesting. I, I look at Dad's presidency as sort of the, the times forgotten presidency. Because when he left office, all the troops were home from Vietnam. Uh, they were in talks with the Russians for a new SALT agreement. The Helsinki Accord, you know, there were tremendous Cold War things that had happened. Uh, the economy was back moving again. Inflation had been cut. But yet, in some respects, his whole presidency will be defined by one thing, which is the Nixon pardon. Did you have any window into your your father's thinking about the pardon? I, at the time, I, I thought probably the same thing most Americans thought. I told Dad, you know, they're going to they're gonna crush you if you pardon Richard Nixon. But if he were here today, he would tell you it was the right thing to do at the time to heal the nation, that the country had to move on. And he explained it to me one day after the presidency, and I think if he talked to the American people this way, they might have even understood. And he says, a, a president sometimes is like a father of a family, you know, the kids get out of line or do something, there's consequences. But sometimes he can elect to not carry out the consequences to the full extent because he thinks by carrying it out to the full extent, it's going to divide the whole family and hurt the family. So for a decision about the whole family, instead of just prosecuting one, father gives grace and mercy. And I think that's what he did with the Nixon situation. People were so close to it at the time. Watergate, they wanted Nixon prosecuted. But I think Dad saw through that anger and said, you know, we've got to get beyond this. The nation needs to heal. And so it, it cost him his political career. Ford's decision to pardon Nixon was one of the big reasons why he would ultimately lose the 1976 election. But interestingly, over time, a lot of people would, in hindsight, come to see that decision as a mark of Ford's leadership, not actually as a failing. And one of those people who had a change of heart was Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward, who was on last week's episode. And here's what he told me. 
Gerald Ford when he pardoned Nixon. I always thought it was the ultimate corruption of Watergate. All these people go to jail, and Nixon goes free. Turns out Ford was really interested in getting Nixon off the front page because he was going to be investigated, certainly indicted, probably tried, maybe jailed. We'd have two or three more years of Watergate. And Ford said to me in one interview, he said, I needed my own presidency. So what looked like in 1974, the ultimate corruption turns out to be actually an act of courage in the national interest because Ford paid an immense political price for the pardon because of the suspicions there was a deal. Mr. Chief Justice, my dear friends, my fellow Americans, the oath that I have taken is the same oath that was taken by George Washington and by every president under the Constitution. But I assume the presidency under extraordinary circumstances never before experienced by Americans. This is an hour of history that troubles our minds and hurts our hearts. Therefore, I feel it is my first duty to make an unprecedented compact with my countrymen. Not an inaugural address, not a fireside chat, not a campaign speech. Just a little straight talk among friends, and I intended to be the first of many. I am acutely aware that you have not elected me as your president by your ballots. So I ask you to confirm me as your president, with your prayers. These are remarks that Gerald Ford gave on August 9th, 1974, following his swearing in. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here the people rule, but there is a higher power. By whatever name we honor him, who ordains not only righteousness but love, not only justice but mercy. As we bind up the internal wounds of Watergate, more painful and more poisonous than those of foreign wars, Let us restore the golden rule to our political process. So now to talk about Ford's presidency is Daniel Sargent. He's an associate professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's an expert on policy and history of the 1970s. Well, thanks so much for talking with me, Daniel. I'm delighted to. So we know the political backdrop for Ford taking over the presidency Nixon's resignation and the public's lack of confidence in their leadership now. Um, But why don't you just set the scene for what's going on outside the White House at this time when he takes over the office? Absolutely. It's sort of a mixed picture when Gerald Ford becomes uh, president. 
Economically, uh, the situation is really uh, quite serious. Uh, the oil crisis uh, that unfolds in the winter of 1973 to 1974 has a pretty catastrophic uh, impact. It triggers the severest uh, recession uh, of the post-war era. Uh, policymakers are you know, confounded by the combination of stubborn inflation and economic recession. There's a great deal of uh, political clamoring for leaders in Washington to put Americans back to work and put the economy uh, back to rights. In foreign policy, uh, the aftermath uh, of the oil crisis creates a set of serious challenges in the Middle East. The 1970s, I think, in a lot of ways, you know, represent a kind of hinge uh, between the classic, uh, you know, kind of bipolar world uh, that comes into being uh, at the end of the Second World War and the more chaotic, uh, less organized, less coherent uh, world that we that we inhabit today. So look, it's during the 1970s that the United States, uh, you know, goes from being a, a net exporter of oil and money to the world to being a net importer of oil and money. It's in the 1970s that the Cold War ceases to be an overriding uh, preoccupation, although it will resurge, uh, you know, briefly in the 1980s under Reagan and begin to, you know, contemplate new kinds of leadership role and responsibility for the United States. The Vietnam War, obviously, is also coming to an end. Um, what about Ford's character and his time in Congress, his career up until this point, um, has equipped him well to start tackling some of these challenges? And then, conversely, what was he less suited or or at least less prepared to have to handle as president. Ford, uh, crucially, is a man of the Congress. His background as a congressman engenders an orientation to compromise, to conciliation, to bipartisan uh, collaboration. Um, you know, it may be important to remember that Ford becomes um, minority leader uh, of the Republican uh, caucus uh, in the House in the immediate aftermath of the Goldwater uh, debacle uh, in 1964. Um, so, you know, the, the searing uh, defeat uh, of Goldwater's presidential campaign sort of serves as a cautionary example. Uh, it, it discourages uh, Ford from embracing, uh, you know, Goldwater's style of sort of ideological politics and convinces him that the Republican Party must be must be moderate. So this practice that, that Ford has in sort of bipartisan uh, legislative politics, I think, makes Ford a, a different kind of uh, president. He, he's, he's much more oriented to, uh, you know, sort of empathetic engagement with adversaries than I think is typical of Cold War presidents more broadly. His instincts are those of a legislator uh, more than uh, a commanding uh, chief executive. Where do you see that? playing out in his leadership style as president, his approach to diplomacy. I mean, aside from the pardon of Nixon, one of the first key decisions that Ford makes as president is to uh, amnesty uh, Vietnam uh, draft uh, dodges and, and deserters. And Ford's decision is really very interesting because on the right, uh, you know, Ford is under pressure from supporters of the war, supporters of the military who do not want there to be any amnesty uh, whatsoever. On the left, uh, Ford is under pressure from opponents of the war who want a total and unqualified amnesty for, for draft dodges. And what Ford does, you know, you're very typical uh, for Gerald Ford, is to seek uh, compromise between those positions. Uh, so what he proposes, this is 
back in September uh, 1974, is a qualified amnesty uh, whereby draft dodges uh, will be uh, granted legal amnesty in exchange for the fulfillment of you know, specific uh, terms and conditions, including, I think, two years of community service to substitute for the military service they didn't perform. That, I think, is a classic Gerald Ford move, seeking uh, you know, to find consensus, to find middle ground. It'd be interesting to pause here for a moment and talk about some of the people in Ford's administration. So he inherited Nixon's cabinet and staff, people like Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. But what was Ford's approach to, you know, making decisions about who he kept, who he let go, you know, how long he let some of Nixon's choices stay before he replaced them, you know, and what did those staffing decisions tell you about Ford and his leadership style? Okay, first thing is that the presidential transition that occurs in August 1974 is totally unique in the annals of American political history. Every other vice president who becomes uh, president becomes president under tragic circumstance, uh, when Lyndon Johnson uh, takes over uh, from President Kennedy in November 1963, the way that Johnson sort of legitimates himself as president is to wrap himself in the mantle of his deceased predecessor. Ford uniquely has to achieve legitimacy by situating himself, at least to some extent, in opposition to a disgraced uh, you know, predecessor. And that, that's a very unusual kind of challenge. For the purposes of you know, sustaining uh, managerial continuity, Ford does uh, persevere with, with Alexander Haig uh, as White House Chief of Staff for a little bit more uh, th- than a month. But Ford, from the very beginning, uh, is you know, convinced uh, that uh, Haig cannot remain as a long-term White House Chief of Staff. Haig had controlled the paper flow uh, to the president. He had controlled the president's schedule. Uh, Haig you know, really substituted as a kind of deputy president uh, who, who mediated uh, access uh, to the president uh, for the broader White House staff. Ford wants a much flatter uh, organizational structure. So what he tries to create uh, initially with with Donald Rumsfeld as his uh, new chief of staff, Rumsfeld's appointed in in late September, is a more open, uh, you know, kind of uh, administrative structure within the White House. And uh, what would you consider, you know, some of the most interesting and significant relationships um, that he had? You know, the dynamic between him and Kissinger or... When Nixon meets with Ford upon the cusp of his retirement, he tells Ford, the one essential man, the one man whom you must keep, whom you cannot replace, is Henry Kissinger. And Ford does keep Kissinger through the entirety uh, of his presidency, and he's an immensely powerful uh, secretary of state. I think Ford broadly shares Kissinger's vision uh, for what U.S. uh, foreign policy ought to be, and that engenders a pretty positive working relationship uh, between the two. Um, So let's talk a little bit about Ford's leadership on the global stage. How do you see his approach to diplomacy and his relationship with other foreign leaders being different from some of his predecessors? I think that Ford's personal diplomacy was one of his great, great strengths as uh, president. You know, Ford as he becomes president, is, of course, immediately and famously acclaimed uh, by the domestic media 
for his humility, um, for his openness, his his candor, his honesty, those basic and defining human characteristics, I think, also served Ford very well in the international arena. During 1974, there are also significant leadership transitions in Germany, in France, and in uh, Great Britain. And Ford very quickly forges excellent working relationships with the new leaders of each of those countries. As a result, in part of those close uh, personal ties, the mid-1970s become a a sort of heyday uh, of of cooperation uh, within the Western alliance. It's during this phase that the G7 summits are set up as a framework for coordinating uh, economic policy. And the fruits of that cooperation, the G7 summit, you know, continue to the present day. When you look at U.S.-Russia relations in particular, then, how important do you think the chapter that is Ford's presidency, um, how important do you think that chapter is in the overall story? I think it's important to remember that Watergate really plunges the future of uh, U.S.-Soviet relations into considerable uh, uncertainty. In the Kremlin, uh, there is not a lot of comprehension uh, as to why uh, Nixon uh, is is being removed from the presidency. From the standpoint, of course, of Communist Party leaders who seized power in a violent coup d'etat, the idea that a president could be removed over a comparatively minor uh, legal infraction is is not intuitively obvious. Uh, And what Ford uh, accomplishes is to very quickly uh, restabilize the working relationship that Nixon uh, and Kissinger built. You know, Ford is a very uh, genial, um, you know, easygoing uh, character, and and his geniality, I think, is a powerful uh, lubricant uh, to smooth uh, U.S.-Soviet uh, relations. You know, Ford, you know, for example, goes to Vladivostok at, at the end of 1974 to negotiate the terms of a new arms control. Uh, agreement with Leonid Brezhnev. He very quickly builds a good rapport with Brezhnev. Um, you know, in one memorable gesture, as he's departing uh, from from the Soviet Union, uh, Ford uh, takes off the coat that he's wearing, which is a you know, kind of luxurious wolfskin uh, coat, uh, and gives it to Brezhnev as a parting gift, a gesture that Brezhnev you know, seems to very much appreciate. Hmm. The, the, the two men achieve a good working relationship thanks, I, I think, to Ford's candor, his his generosity, uh, his, his openness. And this helps to sustain the relationship through a very difficult phase. And But he was doing this all while taking some heat back home from Americans for it who still, you know, there are people who still think Russia is the kind of capital E enemy and to engage with them in this way at all is, is the wrong choice, the wrong move for the American president, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Ford is dealing uh, with a Congress uh, that is that is you know dominated uh, by by progressive Democrats, the so-called Watergate babies, and you know some of these Democrats you know are are convinced by the ni- mid 1970s that the Cold War is over, and that the United States ought to be you know either demilitarizing or devoting itself uh, to new purposes uh, in, in in the world. At the same time, he's being assailed on the right uh, by critics convinced that the Soviet Union is still enemy number one and that Nixon and Kissinger have given away far too much in their quest for arms control. So Ford is being assailed really from bo- from both sides. So skipping over to to Vietnam, what sort of choices was Ford facing in terms of how to navigate 
the end to U.S. involvement in in Vietnam. Okay, here too, I think Ford is caught between domestic political realities and difficult international challenges. Um, of course, Ford has the misfortune uh, to become uh, president uh, just as North Vietnam is beginning to set in motion the military offensive that will overthrow uh, the South Vietnamese government and reunify uh, Vietnam uh, under uh, you know, communist auspices, which is exactly the outcome that the United States uh, went to war in Vietnam uh, to prevent. And, and, and this occurs begins to unfold within a matter of months uh, of, of Ford having assumed the presidency. Meanwhile, of course, uh, the American public is heartily sick uh, of the Vietnam War. Uh, Congress, which is now dominated in both uh, the House and the Senate uh, by, by the Democratic Party, is determined uh, that the United States must not re-engage in, in Vietnam. So when Ford and Kissinger you know, go to Congress in early 1975 to ask for appropriations to support uh, South Vietnam, Congress says no. What Ford does, which I think, you know, Shows once again his his instincts and 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 effectiveness as a, as a conciliator is to give a public speech in in New Orleans uh, in April 1975, in which he declares famously that the Vietnam War is, so far as the United States is concerned, now over. Much as he had done with Nixon and Watergate, Ford tries to draw a bold line under what had been a very difficult phase for the United States, in order that the country can move on and begin to heal. So back home, the economy was deteriorating and there's an energy crisis as oil prices are spiking. And how does Ford go about tackling these issues and how successful or unsuccessful is he at doing that? I don't think Ford was especially successful in terms of the results that he achieved. But I think what we see when we look at Ford's leadership on domestic economic and specifically energy issues is a combination of policy realism and political courage for tries from the very beginning uh, to get to grips uh, with the energy uh, problem and with the broader uh, economic malaise that the United States uh, is, is experiencing. Uh, to do this, he makes a series of important uh, institutional changes within the White House. One of the key changes is the creation of the Economic Policy Board. Here, of course, there is a powerful contrast with N Richard Nixon, who had been unexpert in economic matters and disinterested in economic policy. Ford, in contrast, has training uh, in economics. He was an economics major uh, at Michigan as an undergraduate, and he's deeply uh, versed in the federal budget uh, by dint of his experience uh, as a congressman, and he's, he's profoundly committed uh, to making good economic policy. Uh, Ford um, makes energy uh, the centerpiece of when he goes to Congress in January 1975 to give the State of the Union address. He calls for the nation's first coherent integrated energy policy. Ford predictably runs into stubborn uh, political opposition uh, in the Congress because one of the core components uh, of his energy policy is uh, a increase uh, in the uh, tax on, on gasoline. Uh, Ford understands that you cannot reduce uh, consumption of gasoline unless you uh, increase the price that consumers pay for gas uh, at the pump. Uh, but you know, the enthusiasm in the Congress for raising gas taxes is predictably low, and so Ford's energy policy flounders, and that's a source of great frustration to President Ford. 
So, um, yes, Democrats controlled Congress, but um, he was someone who had really spent his entire career there. And as you had said before, I mean, he's someone who was known for being able to work well with colleagues on both sides of the aisle. Why do you think he didn't have more success as president being able to really just rally the support of Congress for for some of his visions? I mean, Ford is a conciliator, but he's also a fairly conservative Republican. You know, his conservatism is is deeply uh, founded in his own, uh, you know, personal story. Ford is, is, is frugal um, in his personal habits, convinced of the virtues of frugality in budgetary matters. His conservatism is deep and it's intuitive. Now, as president, as a conservative president, much more fiscally conservative than Richard Nixon had been, he's up against a Congress that is probably the most progressive uh, left-wing Congress of the tw- of the entire 20th century. So Ford is is struggling against, you know, political circumstances that are not at all conducive to his vision of how the federal government ought to be run, of what uh, you know, federal policy, particularly economic policies ought to be. So one thing that hasn't come up yet in our conversation is race relations. You know, the Ford administration is interesting, right, because it locates in the aftermath of the Nixon administration, an administration that self-consciously pursued a policy of what you know Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, Nixon's advisor on domestic race issues, characterized as uh, a policy of benign neglect uh, towards race issues. Sort of the guiding assumption, I think, was that in the aftermath of the civil rights uh, accomplishments of the 1960s, uh, the federal government could now take a step back and let American society assimilate the changes that the 1960s and the civil rights movement had 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 wrought. I don't see the Ford administration as marking a significant uh, departure uh, from that policy of, of benign neglect. I think one area in which race relations becomes a, a politically explosive uh, controversy uh, for the Ford administration has to do with the intersection of domestic race politics and foreign policy. Uh, Kissinger and Ford, um, you, you know, realize uh, that uh, apartheid is is reprehensible, and make a decisive choice uh, in the spring of 1976 to align uh, the United States with the aspirations of black majorities in Southern Africa. That's a move that. Uh, that is unpopular with, with the Republican Party base, and doing so really cost him politically. And then, um, ultimately, in the presidential election, what do you think is at the heart of why Ford lost? I think uh, the heart of Ford, why Ford lost uh, is, is Nixon's shadow. I think the stench of Watergate, the stench of Ford's uh, pardon uh, of Richard Nixon was too powerful for uh, President Ford to escape uh, in, in November 1976 when you know the Democratic candidate, Jimmy Carter, who's an effective campaigner, an effective co- political communicator, I- is able to present himself as a force for political reform, a force uh, for openness and transparency and honesty in government. Ironically, of course, Ford, as president, is an open, honest, and transparent chief executive. But mobilizing uh, those those qualities uh, in the 
electoral arena is always going to be very difficult for a president who who became president as a consequence of Richard Nixon's disgrace. When you look back at Ford's time in office, what do you think was the greatest impact that he had on the office of the presidency? The Ford presidency and perhaps the Carter presidency that, that followed it look rather like outliers in the broader history of the post-war presidency. You know, the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. famously characterized the, the 20th century presidency, at least the 20th century presidency that begins with FDR, as an imperial uh, presidency. I think that Ford repudiates that that imperial veneer and, and Ford, you know, strives to redress the sort of constitutional balance between the, the, the legislature and the presidency, a balance that really, you know, became distorted uh, in the Johnson and Nixon years. Carter, I think, uh, tries to do, you know, much the same thing. I think both present themselves as as humble uh, presidents, as presidents who are servants of the people, uh, not, you know, personifications of, of sovereign power. As a coda to this episode, I thought we'd talk about something that hasn't really come up yet in this audio podcast, and that's visual imagery of the presidency. Photography as a medium has been really important in the modern presidency in capturing and preserving our collective image of these leaders. So I got on the phone with David Hume Kennerly, who was Ford's White House photographer, and actually one of the very first White House photographers in American history. So we're going to talk about what it was like to witness and chronicle Ford's presidency up close. David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm happy to be here. So one of your earliest encounters um, with Gerald Ford was when you photographed him for the cover of Time magazine in 1973. Right. The first time I met Gerald Ford. He was the minority leader, and um, I was dispatched by Time Magazine up to Capitol Hill to get a picture of Ford, who was uh, on the list as possible uh, replacements for Vice President Spiro Agnew, who had resigned. When I showed up there, he was very friendly, and and, uh, he said, oh, you're wasting your time. And I said, well, if it doesn't work out, you'll have a nice picture for your wall. Uh, I posed him by a uh, window, so I, I refer to that as Rembrandt lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later that night, uh, Nixon announced he was going to be uh, his choice. And that photograph ended up on the cover of Time. It was his first time cover and my first time cover. But, you know, one of the things that I've thought about it, uh, since then was he at that moment didn't know he was going to be picked. He tells this whole story mm-hmm. about uh, uh, getting the phone call from um, Nixon, and he was on a, a, a line in his house. It didn't have a like a separate line, and so asked Nixon to call back so Betty could hear it. And, <laughs> but if you think about what people go through these days and uh, the vetting process, just to the nth degree, there was no vetting. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and it was that that sort of first encounter that sparked like a beginning of a friendship and a working relationship between the two of you? Well, what happened after uh, he was selected by Nixon, 
he had to go through this whole congressional process of uh, hearing. So time, uh, something that they would never do these days, assigned me to cover him full time. And because of that, uh, I went out to Vail with them when they were skiing, and I got to know him and Mrs. Ford and the family. Hmm. Um, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. Do you want me to talk about the night that um, he selected me to be his uh, photographer? That's, I was actually just about to say, tell me, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> but, but I can't. Uh, um, uh, at that point, I was 27 years old. There were, uh, oh, I think maybe a dozen press people uh, covering him. So I was one of those people. I was the only photographer on the plane with him usually. And uh, the night before, Nixon announced uh, he was going to be resigning. And then I have a whole sequence of photos of Nixon getting on his helicopter, flying away. And then I uh, uh, photographed the swearing-in of President Ford, uh but that night, I was invited to come over to the Ford's house, and they had a very modest split-level home in Alexandria, Virginia. And um, at one point during the evening, President Ford said to me, do you mind staying? I want to talk to you after everybody else has left. And it wasn't like a big crowd. They had friends and certainly some family members were there. And so uh, we sat in his living room, and I never will forget this because I'm a kid from a little town in Oregon. I mean, I don't come from any political background, no money. My dad was a traveling salesman. And here I am sitting in the room with the president of the United States, mm-hmm. which is like, I mean, it was, it was one of those sort of out of body experiences. And he was puffing on his pipe and, and I knew he was going to ask me about the white house photographer's job. I, I had grave reservations about it. I said, well, I'd be very interested in doing it on two conditions. One, I report directly to you. And two, I have total access to everything that's going on. And he kind of stops smoking his pipe. And I thought, oh, this is great. I basically just told the president of the United States <laughs> to take his job and shove it. I wonder how my parents are going to react to this. And then he started laughing and said, you don't want Air Force One on the weekends? And that was pretty much it. Uh, we, uh, we, the next day, we could included the deal. I started working for him. And, and that's those were the circumstances. I had full run of the place. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it would be interesting to hear you just talk a little bit more about what sort of access or lack of access presidential photographers had before you and then um, how you did recast the role. Well, I think uh, the history of the White House photo office started with President Lyndon Johnson and his White House photographer was uh, Yochi Okamoto. Uh, Okamoto, or Oki as we called him, was the gold standard in presidential photography. I don't think anybody to this day has done it better than he did. He had a very dramatic president, all these huge stories at the time from assassination of Martin Luther King and the war in Vietnam. And Oki was the first civilian to hold the job as White House photographer. Ollie Atkins, Nixon's photographer was second, I was the third. Oki uh, was uh, was the Mozart of White House photographers. His photographs were extraordinary, not just like single photos, but telling whole stories, and mm. uh, it was unbelievable. And then when, when Ollie Atkins had the job, he had practically zero access. In fact, the Nixon photo archives are a desert, 
And then President Ford uh, hired me, and I, I had remarkable access to not only the president, but the family upstairs, downstairs. Did President Ford seem to just really understand and appreciate the power that images could have in his presidency, that, he, that Ford, he gave you such access? I think President Ford appreciated the images, but unlike Johnson, who was a very vain man, and, and uh, Oki told me this, he would, if he didn't like the way a picture looked, at it, even to sign it and send it out to somebody, he wouldn't do it. Mm. President Ford honestly cared less about that. He's uh, more interested in doing his job and letting me do mine. And there were no two Gerald Fords. The man was not only selfless, but he treated everybody the same. And in, in, in private and in public, there wasn't a guy backstage making disparaging remarks about any ethnic group, uh, like you've heard with Nixon tapes. And Gerald Ford was what you saw was what you got. He was uh, a truly genuine, honest, wonderful human being. I found it so interesting. And I read that you know, in 1975, while you were his photographer, that you went to Vietnam to document the war's toll by that point. And that when you came back, that Ford had wanted to see your photos from the trip and that he had many of them put up in the West Wing so that they could serve as a reminder to him and his staff of the devastation. And I found that so powerful and so interesting that, you know, he could see the value not just in you photographing him, but that your eyes could serve as, you know, another set of eyes for him to to see the world through. I don't think any president's ever had a briefing like I gave President Ford when I came back from Vietnam. Da Nang had fallen. I was up in the Trang when it had to be evacuated. Uh, I went over to Cambodia less than two weeks before it folded. And I shot all these pictures of, of refugees and uh uh, really the human toll of what was going on. And it was very emotional for me because I'd spent two and a half years in Vietnam. I knew a lot of the people who were being displaced. I, I had friends of mine that were begging me to take their children with them. When I showed the pictures of President Ford, I also told him that uh, despite what anybody was saying, I thought Vietnam maybe had three or four weeks left before it was going to collapse, South Vietnam. And in fact, it happened three and a half weeks later. But somebody had, was so offended by having these pictures up on the wall of the White House, they, had a, they took them down on one evening. And um, President Ford got so mad and ordered them put back up and that he would fire anybody who, who messed with them. He said it's really important that everybody here knows what's happening over there, that we're not just uh, surrounded by cheery color photos of state dinners and and parties. Do you remember um, which photos were the ones that were hanging in the, the West Wing? Uh, I do. There were pictures from Cambodia. There was a photograph of a woman dying in a hospital. There was a little refugee girl uh, in Phnom Penh. There were refugees at Cameron Bay. There was a, a ship filled with uh, uh, escaping South Vietnamese soldiers who had bugged out from Da Nang. It was a it was a devastatingly difficult thing for him to have to be the president who had the, the war under those circumstances. And, and I was the one person who had been in the war and was also right there in the room when he pulled the plug. Mm. 
I was hoping that you could tell me the highest and the lowest moment that you saw of him in the presidency. I think uh, one of the high points, and it was the moment that I really felt he took over command of the office, that uh, during the Mayaguez situation, which uh, was when an American ship had been taken over by uh, the Khmer Rouge, and there were Americans on board. They took them off, and they were holding them hostage. And uh, this is, you know, right after uh, Cambodia had fallen to the Khmer Rouge. Mm -hmm. And he oversaw that whole operation. And I really believe that was when, uh, when he had totally assumed the presidency. And then his actions resulted in the Americans being released, every one of them, without being uh, injured. That was a real high point. And he had the opportunity to bomb the Cambodians. He was being encouraged to take stronger action, but he said, look, I'm not going to make the Cambodian people pay for what happened to us in Vietnam. And to me, that's leadership. It's not like trying to teach people a lesson or take revenge. And um, and to, the payoff was that what he did was actually the right course of action. Uh, a low point was one for sure was when uh, Mrs. Ford had been diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. He was uh, very emotional about that. I mean, they were about as close as a couple could ever be. Uh, that was a low point and losing the election. Uh, he almost won uh, the day he lost the election. He, he literally couldn't talk, uh, could barely croak. He, like two weeks, kind of wore his voice out. Hmm. And when we walked back to the Oval Office, it was me and Terry O'Donnell, uh, who was his personal aide. And Terry and I were probably the two people who spent the most time with him outside of the uh, immediate family. And he put his arm around Terry and said, Terry, I really appreciate it. I mean, you could barely hear, but he was whispering to me. I really appreciate everything you've done for me. If there's anything I could do for you to help after we leave here, let me know. And Terry and I both burst into tears. I mean, it was just so emotional, and it was so it was such a difficult defeat. But it was very emblematic of the kind of person he was, always putting other people ahead of himself. You have gone on to, you know, photograph so many other presidents as well. Have you noticed that there was something different about him? The difference between him and people who really wanted to be president, he wouldn't, he wouldn't walk over his mother's dead body to get there. It wasn't his dream, his aspiration. And being backstage with Ford, I thought, this is so uplifting that someone like him could actually be the president of the United States. This is a good commentary. Gerald Ford is a good commentary on the kind of people we have in this country. Many thanks to this week's guests, Stephen Ford, photographer David Hume Kennerly, and Professor Daniel Sargent. And many thanks to all of you for sending along so many ideas and so much encouragement for a possible second season and uh, I'll let you know as soon as we come up with what's next um, in the meantime if you don't already follow Presidential on Instagram you should find us because I'm going to be sharing many of David's photographs of President Ford on Instagram all week our Instagram name is presidential underscore WP. You can find us there. Anyway, 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode, for all your support, and we'll be talking about Jimmy Carter next week. <laughs>